0: Father in heaven, we love you, and we're so grateful uh, for the call to to give you praise. And we recognize that creation uh, just paints before us your beauty and your majesty, and we are to join in with their joyful declaration that you are God. And Father, as we think about all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you're going to do, we want to be found faithful in declaring your praises from one generation to the next, Father. We want to be found faithful and our ability to trust you, to look to you in all of our ways so that you will guide our steps. And so, Father, as we come before you now, we once again uh, prepare to approach your word with great expectation that your spirit would fill our hearts, souls, and minds, and you would open us up to everything it is that you want us to understand and learn, that, Father, we would be transformed and changed and encouraged today to once again give our lives fully to you. So we thank you, Father, for this opportunity, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you all again for being here today. A special word of thanks for, for Kevin and April and their a very creative way of advertising and promoting and sharing what will be an exciting day on October 17th through UBC Sports Day. I do want to offer a couple additional details for the parents. Uh, please be sure to grab one of these on your way out today. We have them at uh, both the preschool entrance and then the entrance towards the back and we'll try to have some out on the east lawn when you leave. Uh, But a couple of things from my vantage point that I want to emphasize is that this really on on so many levels has a lot of intentionality to it. We want it to really be about outreach uh, and so we really want to encourage children to invite their friends Uh, not necessarily that you come and form teams here at UBC, but go to your neighbors, go to your friends at school, and and use this as a way for outreach and an opportunity to engage in other families and and to to build those relationships. And to really, not only that, but to point to what is obviously a really good cause. And uh, that's really what I think ties all this together, not just for our children, uh, but for all of us. And we really want this to be a church-wide event, not just something that our kids do after service one Sunday, and so what we're encouraging discipleship groups to do or you to do as an individual is to uh, sponsor a team or match a team's donations because we're gonna ask every child to put something in to participate, whether it's a quarter, a dollar, we want them to give something to pre- present an offering uh, and we wanna kinda join with them in that endeavor. And when we were praying through, well what can we uh, you know, really kind of direct those, those offerings towards, we were in these conversations with Buckner about a lot of different other things and as you all know, our our call towards foster care and adoption is something that we're very passionate about here at this church. And there's been a recent crisis in the foster care world over the last year or so. uh, Back in March, there were these reports of somewhere around 180 foster children uh, having to stay in foster care offices because there's just not enough families. And so these children don't have a place to stay. Well, then Texas came out and kind of made a law against agencies and facilities using their office spaces to be a place to house children. And so children literally didn't have a place to go and and agencies had to scramble uh, to try to meet this crisis and this need. And so Buckner has uh, entered into an agreement with the state and they have these different safe housing options, but it, it wasn't a part of their budget. So they're raising funds to give children a safe place to stay. And they've set a goal. And for every $45 that is raised, you give one child one safe night of a place to stay. So our goal is to see how many safe nights we can provide as a church if that gives you a point of context. So some of that information's on this. That's why we want every adult to walk out with one of these today because we want everyone to participate. Uh, we want this to be, even, even if you don't have children, but you know children that would want to participate, it's for a good cause and it's an opportunity for us to gather together um, and to not just engage the community around us, make a, but make a difference in the other lives of children that really, really need it. And so please grab one of those before you leave today. The only clarification, as great as their illustration was, is that it won't be baseball. It'll be soccer. But that's okay. Uh, we can we can move on from that. But uh, really looking forward to it and hope that you all are able to partic- participate with us. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 18. We're going to continue our series through parables and just as again as an anchor the whole year has been driven by this idea that we uh, get from Hebrews chapter 12 that we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. I remember going into this year thinking about all that the pandemic had done to us and is doing to us and just the stress of today's world and culture and trying to figure out how do we navigate through all of these uncertainties in this tumultuous terrain and, and what the Lord really led on my heart was just that call just, just focus on me. Right, just keep your eyes on Jesus. And it was that idea that really kind of structured the rest of the year. It's why we spent uh, the season of Lent looking at the different names of Jesus. It's why we've looked at the words of Jesus that were offered to the churches in the book of Revelation. And now we're looking at his parables and how the power of story captures hearts and minds, how Jesus' parables have changed the world. And we've hit on a number of different parables up to this point in the series. We've looked at the parable of new wine, We've looked at the parable of judgment, of the good sower, and how you receive the word of God and the kingdom of God. We've looked at the rich young ruler. We've looked at watchfulness. There's so many different parables we've looked at, and that's one of the things that I really like about the parables is that they have a great variety, right? There are so many different subject matters that Jesus hits when offering these stories, and each story actually has multiple lessons within it. And there's a lot of different directions that you can go. So there's a lot of flexibility in going through this series on parables. Now, in each lesson that we've occurred or that we've arrived at, we try to focus in on the audience, right? Understanding who it is that's hearing this particular parable, because that really gives some important insight to how we should understand the parable itself. And so on some occasions, it's been just the disciples, on others, it's been just the Pharisees. Sometimes it's a large group and a mixed group. And where we're gonna to be today in Luke chapter 18, if you were to kind of turn to the left a little bit and go back to 17, I think, verse 20, you see another reference to, to somewhat of a mixed audience. The disciples are again with Jesus. The Pharisees are in the crowd as well are some others. But as you move forward over the next chapter and a half of these various parables that Jesus offers, you get to the middle of chapter 18, where we're gonna to be today, and it's a very specific group. He says, to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. So this is the audience that Jesus has in mind for the parable today. To those who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. And so I want to make sure that we understand that particular audience. When you see the word confident, we've talked about the word confidence on numerous occasions, usually from a positive vantage point, but that's a different Greek word, right? That, that word that you find uh, that we've spoken of a little bit more positively speaks to boldness and courage that is typically anchored in freedom. This is a different word in the Greek language. This is a word that is translated or defined as to be persuaded or convinced or even in some context, corrupted, All right? So it's totally different Connotation. What you see here is Jesus is talking about those who have persuaded themselves or convinced themselves of their own righteousness, and as a result, they're looking down on everyone else. It's a very specific group, and and I think that's an important piece for us to have in mind as we read this parable today. But it is one of my favorite parables that Jesus teaches. It's it's not one that requires a whole lot of uh, interpretation. It's very straightforward, but it's very powerful and one that I think carries an important message for us this morning. So let's follow along in chapter 18, picking up in verse 9. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at at a distance, who would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. All right, it's a pretty familiar parable, and one that you may have come across before, and I'm curious, how does it initially strike you? Like, what is your initial response to this particular parable? And I think a lot of times uh, we go into this parable with certain preconceived notions because of the two main characters that are involved, the tax collector and the Pharisee. And if you've grown up in church at all, or even if you've been around church just a little bit, even if you're just reading the Gospel of Luke for the first time, at this point in Luke's Gospel, you probably have some preconceived notions about those two characters. At this stage, you probably have realized Pharisee equals bad. Pharisee is a villain. There have been enough interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees throughout Luke's gospel that we see that it's typically confrontational and Jesus is typically uh, challenging them on some of their approaches and their way of living. Tax collectors are typically received by Jesus and embraced by Jesus, and so we tend to have a more positive view of a reference to a tax collector. And so it's easy for us to read this parable and bring those notions into the story. But we need to deconstruct that a little bit. Because that's not how the audience would have heard it. The audience that was actually there in that moment would have not had those same sort of impulses or inclinations or stereotypes. Right? Here's what would maybe be a little bit more common from a contemporary point of view. Imagine if I was up here one day and I said, hey, I want to tell you a story about an elementary school teacher and a politician. Right? You're Your stereotypes, your assumptions about what that story would look like would fit the mold of those particular characters, right? Especially if I was going to tell you a story about how those two came to church to pray, you would probably anticipate a prayer from the elementary school teacher being somewhat innocent, something compassionate, something that's mindful of others and the politician, a prayer that was maybe rehearsed and insensitive and insincere and maybe just a photo op or or corruption, whatever the associations are with those particular arenas, and that's how they would have heard it. But the Pharisees, well those were the people of integrity. Those were the people of God. Those were the people that, that understood what the law was supposed to be and how you were supposed to live. Tax collectors were villains. They were corrupt. They were the cheats. And so that's how the audience begins to approach this story. And I think that's important for us to deconstruct that because it helps us better learn the lessons that I think Jesus really wants us to hear. Because right, he's going to challenge your preconceived notions about people and how it is that we really understand that people find righteousness and how righteousness is defined, especially before God. And a lot of times we like to just throw labels on people based on those reputations and draw those conclusions, and Jesus is going to confront that head on. So as you read through the parable, you notice something's a little off. Right? You can start to hear a little bit that maybe that prayer from the Pharisee isn't exactly what you anticipated, and the prayer from the tax collector is something a little bit different, and, and that's kind of how Jesus warms you up to the point. But what I wanted to do for us today is really serve as a word of warning, right? because when you think about the audience and who Jesus has in mind when he's getting ready to tell this parable, he's saying this is for those who are confident in their own righteousness and have a tendency to look down on everyone else. And maybe that's not you today, but I think if we're honest, we would admit it's all of us at some point, right? We all find those seasons or those moments or those situations where we can become very confident in our own righteousness and look down with disdain and ridicule towards others. And so what this parable can do is serve as a word of warning. How do you guard against that? How do you prevent that sort of mentality? And that's really what I want us to To really kind of wrestle with here for the next few moments. And so you learn your first lessons from the Pharisee, right? And there are a few things that I think we can extract from this parable that the Pharisee does that conditions himself to ultimately become confident of his own righteousness, what he does to persuade himself of his own justification, right? The first thing that I would call your attention to is that he has a special claim on truth, right? Before he even opens his mouth, before he even utters a word in this prayer, just by the sheer notion that he is a Pharisee, he has a certain mindset and perspective that he has a special, a special claim on truth. All right, let me explain that to you. The word Pharisee and the idea of Phariseeism comes from a transliteration of the Aramaic word which means to separate or to be separate, right? And that was the whole notion to be a Pharisee was to, to distinguish yourself from the world around you. And that was actually necessary at certain points. As the, was the pagan Hellenistic culture continued to gain in momentum and popularity, there was a movement to say, we, we don't want to be a part of this. And that is not wrong inherently. Even Jesus himself teaches that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And so the Pharisees, that was their motivation. That was their, their tendency. But what it did is it led to a mindset that they needed to disengage from the world and live a life that was separate and isolated from the people around him. And I I want us to to wrestle with that for a moment because that is definitely something that we all, I think, consider at some point or another. Right, that when we try to reconcile how am I called to be in the world and not of the world is that we sometimes fall victim to this idea that we're going to retreat and hunker down and withdraw, isolate ourselves. Let's build the Christian bubble that insulates us from the world around us. And I would strongly, strongly urge you to caution against that way of thinking for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's not what Jesus models. Right? That's, how, that's what the Pharisees do. That's not what Jesus does. So Jesus offers the word, be in the word, be in the world but not of the world, but he demonstrates how to do that. And the reason he's, his ministry was so appalling is because he was eating with tax collectors and sinners and speaking to women caught in adultery and the women at the well and Samaritans. Like that's what that's what caused the the uproar and the attention because the Pharisees, they didn't associate with those people. They distanced themselves from sinners and tax collectors. Jesus engaged them. So we need to be careful of this retreating mindset that we need to insulate ourselves from the big, bad, scary world out there because that's not what Jesus did. The other reason we need to caution against it is because it really becomes a prohibi- prohibitive factor towards missions. Right? How are you going to effectively engage people if you don't know them, if you don't know their needs, if you don't know their struggles, if you don't know their way of thinking, if you don't know their challenges? Right? You create this gap and this distance, and it becomes increasingly more difficult to actually engage them and make an impact on the world around you. This is why our vision to be a people who love justice is so important, because we're not gonna be a church that retreats. We're not gonna retreat from the darkness. We're gonna light it up. Right? You engage so that you can make that difference. But the other reason I would strongly caution against that way of thinking is because it can lead to this idea Right, that you have this special claim towards truth and you can create an environment where you're more likely to buy into the idea that you can convince yourself of your own righteousness. Right, so here's what the Pharisees did. As they retreated from the world around them, they had this belief that they had an understanding of the law. Right, they, they understood the law better than anyone else. They had studied it, they'd interpreted it, they knew how to practice it. And so therefore they had this insight in this special knowledge that no one else had. And when you do that, that gives you a sense of uniqueness. That gives you a sense of superiority. And this is, again, I think a human tendency that we all buy into, right? We love the idea of being given some inside information that no one else knows. Right? If you were to take a, a modern day example, I think this is one of the reasons conspiracy theories get traction. right? Because that's kind of their inherent appeal, isn't it? Hey, here, here's something no one else knows. You've got a special inside. You've got special information. In fact, I came across an article uh, that included an interview from a Dr. Karen Douglas, who's a PhD uh, professor of social uh, psychology at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom. She was interviewed about the momentum of conspiracy theories in our world today, and she cited several different examples or reasons that people buy into it, and in her third and final reason, she referenced what she referred to as social motives. Let me give you her quote here. She says, The final set of motives that we would call social motives and those refer to people's desires to feel good about themselves as individuals and also to feel good about themselves in terms of the groups that they belong to. I guess at the individual level, people like to have high self-esteem. They like to feel good about themselves and potentially, one way of doing that is to feel that you have access to information that other people don't necessarily have. And this is quite a common rhetorical tool that people use when they talk about conspiracy theories. Everybody else is some kind of sheep but you know the truth, you have the truth. And having that kind of belief and that feeling that you're in possession of information that other people don't have can give you a feeling of superiority over others. Now, I'm not here to to target just the idea of conspiracy theories. My point is is that that's the appeal that we all carry. That's why it works, right? I've got special inside information no one else knows and that gives me a sense of superiority over other people. Right? Now, the reality is, is that and to a certain extent, every religion kind of makes this claim, doesn't it? Right? like Every religion declares, well, we have a certain understanding of truth that maybe the rest of the world doesn't. Christians believe that, right? that we know something that the rest of the world doesn't, that Christ crucified and resurrected is the wisdom of God. Here's the difference. Right? When you're given the truth of the gospel, you're compelled to engage the world around you and to share it. There are other truths that we think we have that it us to distance one another, distance ourselves from others, and look on others with ridicule. And so my point in bringing that up is that in our quest for understanding truth, we have to be objective, and we have to recognize this human impulse to use truth with a special claim that gives us a sense of entitlement or superiority over others and leads us down that path of looking down on everyone rather than wanting to serve everyone. Right, and so that was part of what the Pharisees were doing. Right, We know the law better than anyone else. We know how it should be lived, and therefore they distance themselves from people around them. So that's, that's before the Pharisee even offers a word in the prayer. Then he prays. And we see that that special claim towards truth has influenced his very prayer and his very approach to God and to others. Now I'm gonna work in reverse in this prayer. I wanna start with what he cites towards the end. This Pharisee also cites a special claim towards truth. Um, let's call it experience or activities. He, he basically lists out a spiritual resume to justify his own righteousness. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. All right, so he develops this spiritual resume, which again is something that I think we're inclined to do. A lot of times we, we maybe say this subconsciously, be it to others or even before God. I, I, I've done all these things, God. Look at this resume. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. I'm I'm an overall decent person, right? We come up with this this resume in our list to justify our understanding of our own righteousness. The reason that can become problematic is that when you begin to, to live there too consistently, your relationship with God becomes contractual, right? It's almost like there's a transactional nature in our relationship with God rather than a covenantal one. Right, so, so the point being is that a lot of times what we'll do when we think about these spiritual resumes that we might bring before God is we'll think, God, give me X because I've done Y and Z. Right, God, God, give me these things because you know I've done all of this. Why would you hold this for me when I'm doing all these different things? And we bring our spiritual resume before the God as some form of justification of our own righteousness and what he deserves us. And the problem with that is that it goes against the very essence of the gospel. Right, that's what most every other religion offers. If you do this, follow these steps, follow these five things, go to the temple, do all these different things, then God will maybe provide these things to you. What is different about the gospel is you cannot earn your standing before God. You can't earn salvation. It's not about your resume. Right, you, you can't come and, and earn a positive favor before God. What the gospel teaches is that it is because of God's grace and because of his mercy, that he brings us into his presence. And because of that grace and mercy, we are transformed. That's where life change occurs. We don't change our lives so that we can earn God's grace. We get God's grace and it changes our lives. It's not transactional, it's transformational. Right? And so that's the other thing that the Pharisee is somewhat implying, right? I can justify my own righteousness because of all these things that I've done. Now where that often typically goes is the third element and kind of the safeguard we have to be mindful of is not just that we often can find ourselves with a special claim to truth or a special resume, but then we believe we have a special privilege over other people. And that's the heart of the Pharisee's prayer, right? right? He comes with this prayer of gratitude, and he says, I'm so thankful that I'm not like these robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers, and even that tax collector. What, what kind of stands out to me is you think through the list that the Pharisee offers as he moves from being general to specific, right? It's initially just general groups, but then also towards the end, it's a specific person. It makes you wonder, did he know something about this tax collector? Did he know this tax collector's past or the reputation? It's hard to say, but it's again an example of what we often do. Sometimes we justify our, our own righteousness or our own view of ourselves by comparing ourselves to a general group or maybe someone specific i used to do the group thing all the time when i was younger right my mom would get upset with me maybe i hadn't cleaned my room I'm like mom at least i'm not like a drug addict right at least i'm not like a partier you know and i'm just like painting a broad brush with all these other people see how how good i am how terrible this group is over here and then i think a lot of us when we're honest there are specific examples and we either think to ourselves, or we may be saying privately, or maybe we say to, to loved ones, or even to God, well, I'm not like that guy. God, I may not read my Bible a lot, but I would never do what he did. And it's that, that human impulse, man. Bring others down so that you can make yourself feel better. And that that was the distorted view of the Pharisee. Right? He was truly looking down on. Everyone else to look down means to ridicule. And so, so where do we see this play out? Like, where do you see this a lot? I, I can give you a couple examples, right? Like, I think in our culture today, we see this play out a lot in the political arena. So, so if you think about it politically, there's a group that you're going to identify with, typically. And that group will lead you to believe that you have a special view of knowledge, special insight. You know how the world should work, how government should be run, what policies to enact, what's right, what's wrong, what's moral, what's immoral. You have that special claim to truth, and you have evidences. You got a resume that you can use to point to it and justify that belief and that conviction. And anyone that opposes that needs to be looked down upon and ridiculed. They're an outsider, and we're filled with an environment right now where people just ridicule one another because they don't have the same knowledge or the same experience or whatever it is. And so let me just be very clear, it's never okay for believers to engage in that sort of engagement with other people. It's never okay to be a people of ridicule. I don't care what your convictions are. What's more concerning though, is not when that comes from a political point of view but a spiritual one. And we have to acknowledge and repent of the fact that churches have historically, and in many occasions, positioned themselves with the same sort of attitude to the world around them. Right, where we have claimed a certain inside knowledge and a certain experience, and so then we just ridicule those who don't follow suit. And so maybe the question, if you're wondering, man, is this me, like, am I falling victim to this? Maybe here's the question. Um, How much ridicule have you done lately? Publicly or privately? Where's your heart? How many people out there do you find yourself frustrated with and you're ridiculing because of their view, their position, or their stance? How how often do you find yourself doing that right now? That's not what the gospel is calling us to do. That's not how we're supposed to see others. And when we find ourselves living with that sort of mindset, we have convinced ourselves of our own self-righteousness and we're looking down on everyone else. That's exactly what Jesus is calling out. What what is so concerning about that position and that posture is it robs the gospel of the very grace that it's founded upon. I love the way that uh, John Nolan brings this to fruition or, or brings this to clarity. He says about this particular parable, on first appearances, our Pharisee presents very well, but things are not at all that they may seem. In ways that are not at first easy to put one's fingers on, something seems not quite right. We are not warmed by the love of God when we are in the presence of this upright and apparently godly man. When we examine this man closely, the flaw lines begin to show. And what we see is a man whose apparent love for God is not at all at the same time a heart of compassion for his fellows. Righteousness for him drives him far away from others. It builds not bonds to those with whom he shares life in Palestine. Well might the Pharisee thank God for his advantages, for they were real enough but along with them comes responsibility. Here's what I love. If grace does not lead to grace, it turns out to have not been grace at all. Love that. What, what the Pharisee was missing was the very grace that had saved him. And so we as believers, we need to guard ourselves against believing in our own sense of Righteousness because that cuts out grace from the gospel. But the more in tune we are to grace, then the more it leads us to extend that same grace to others. Enter the tax collector. Someone uniquely and intimately aware of his need for God's mercy and his grace. Look to the contrast in these prayers. Here comes the tax collector now and his posture is vastly different from the Pharisee. Stands at a distance, unable to even look heaven and he beats his breast have mercy on me oh god a sinner knows exactly who he is knows exactly his condition of brokenness and comes and confesses it needing a reminder of god's intimate and amazing mercy and so with that posture and with that request jesus offers the plot twist Right, here were your conceptions. You thought the Pharisee and the tax collector, you, you envisioned something totally different. Let me tell you, you want to know who went home justified? This one. This man over here, he's the one that left justified. Right, the word justified means to be made right, to be acquitted. Right, it's a reminder that we all live in this distorted and tense relationship with God, The separation with God that needs to be bridged. And that bridge has occurred, that justification occurs only through Christ and through the mercy of God, not through anything that we can ever achieve or earn or claim. And so with that justification, Jesus then makes the real point of the parable. Whoever tries to exalt themselves will be humbled, and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. And it leads us to a, a great reminder of the, of the posture that we are supposed to bring when we come before God. It's not just the posture that we bring before other people, but the posture we bring before our very creator. And for me, that's really the, the question of the morning that I really hope you wrestle with and reflect upon. Right, First, thinking about the tax collector's prayer. When was the last time you cried out for mercy? When you think about your prayer life, how often is it infused with a, a desire and a call for mercy. How in tune are you with your own sinfulness? Right, the Pharisee comes with a prayer of gratitude and self-declared righteousness. The tax collector comes with an understanding of his own sinfulness and a need for mercy. How often are our prayers filled with that call and that desire for God's mercy and grace? How in tune are we to that sinfulness? But the other thing I want us to wrestle with is what is just our posture? What posture do we assume before God when we come before him? Because that posture will greatly influence any posture we assume before others. And so here's here's my takeaway when I read this parable. When When I look at this parable and I extract it and think about our context and I think about conversations that I've had and things that I've seen, here's where I feel like it resonates with us. I think for some of us in here today, We are like the Pharisee, right? I I really do, I think some of us have a certain environment or context or season where we've convinced ourselves of our own righteousness. We have the spiritual resume ready to go, we have a certain understanding of what we've done, and and we feel like that that earns us a certain privilege and posture in front of God. And so if that resonates with you at all, if you can be honest and say, man, my life's been filled with more ridicule towards others because of that sense of self. Man, today's a day to repent and confess that. And I think some of us, that's exactly what we need to do. But there's another group, and this is the group that I probably hear from more. And I, I don't know how widespread it is. I don't know if it's maybe just something recent. But there's another group that I really want to speak to this morning as well. There's some folks that would be very quick to admit, man, I am not the Pharisee. <laughs> not at all. That's not me. I'm not going to ever claim. I, don't have, I ain't got no spiritual resume. I got no warped sense of self-righteousness. But the problem is that you still think that's what God wants. Right? See, the, the problem with the Pharisee is that he had lost sense, lost sight of God's mercy and his need for it. But the second group makes a similar mistake. Even if you don't see yourself as a Pharisee and you think to yourself, but that's what God wants. How many conversations have I had with people that have said, you know what, man, I just, I don't go to church enough. I don't read the Bible enough. I just, I've made too many mistakes in my life. I just don't know that God really wants me or would listen to me or would value me. There's too many things I'm still consumed by or drawn into and if that's you you're making the same mistake as the first person you've lost view of god's mercy and your need for it one of the things i love so deeply about the tax collector is in this overwhelming sense of his own sinfulness he still came to god (laughs) he still came to god So many of us, when we become aware of our own brokenness and our sinfulness, we run away from him. The tax collector comes to him. Where will you run? What I want us to be reminded of is the extent of God's incredible mercy. And I think we can kind of conclude that lesson by looking at the details of the prayer that the tax collector offers. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner it's reasonable to conclude that the tax collector here is invoking a reference to Psalm 51. If you think back on the opening lines of Psalm 51, it reads, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It was a foundational psalm in Judaic life not just because of the content of the psalm itself, but the context within which it was written. I want to remind you of that context this morning. Right? It occurred at a time when kings were supposed to go out to war with their men. But on this particular occasion, King David decided to stay behind. It makes you wonder why. Maybe he had convinced himself of his own righteousness his own sense of superiority, that those sort of things were beneath him now and he didn't need to go. So his men go out to fight and he stays behind. So one day he's walking along the rooftop of his palace and he sees a woman bathing. He's enthralled with her beauty, captivated by his lust. So he asks about her, he inquires of her. And he's told. She's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, so he knows. He knows she's someone's daughter. He knows she's someone's wife. And he has her brought to him anyway. I think it's worth mentioning that nowhere in Scripture does it seem to imply she consented to this, desired it or wanted it, but she was brought to him anyway. He lays with her, She conceives and becomes pregnant. And so his first response is to cover it up. Have Uriah brought back? Have him lay with his wife so that when this child is born, the answer can obviously be it belongs to him. But Uriah is brought back and he has more integrity than the king himself and refuses to even lay in his own home. How can I lay in the comforts of my home and my fellow men are sleeping in tents on the fields of battle? And so seeing that this plan is not going to work, David goes to a much darker place and writes a letter to the commander. Writes a letter saying, have Uriah be moved to the front lines and put him where the battle and the fighting is the fiercest. And when the fighting ensues, withdraw your men, abandon him, so that he can be struck down and killed. Now, here's the real sinister part. You know what's really crazy? He writes this letter, and he gives it to Uriah. So he marches with his own death sentence, his own instructions, and hands them over, not knowing what they contain. So the commander does exactly what David has ordered. Uriah is put on the front lines, and he is killed. Word comes back, and Bathsheba mourns for her husband. And then she becomes the wife of David. The scripture is very clear. This displeased the Lord. So Nathan comes up and talks to David. Tells him a story. His own parable, if you will. Says there were two men. There was a rich man who had many lands, many cattle, many sheep, and a poor man. This poor man just had one lamb, but he took care of it, he fed it, He, he took it to Every place with him, he nurtured it. It The world to him was like it was one of his own children. And then one day, traveler comes in and the rich man wants to throw a feast for this traveler. And so rather than taking one of his own sheep, he takes the lamb of the poor man and he slaughters it. In the middle of telling this story, David is enraged. Show me this man who would do such a thing. He will pay four times over for such an act. And as he is in the midst of his rage, Nathan says, it's you." You're the man. You're the king. God gave you wives. He gave you lands. He gave you everything that you have. And if that hadn't been enough, He would have given you more. And the word of conviction pierces David's heart. And Nathan's very clear there will be consequences. The sword will never leave your home. The child dies. Consequence for this act, but in the middle of all of that conviction and grief and guilt, you know what Nathan says your sin is forgiven and taken away. (laughs) So imagine if you're David, like, do your best, put yourself in his shoes. Think about that being overwhelmed with that sort of guilt, that sort of shame, being guilty of deceit, of adultery of lust, of murder. I mean, that's a long list. And it was in that state, in that season, that David kneeled down before his God and said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And so Psalm 51 and that story of David became an anchor for the Jews to remind them That God's grace and mercy can forgive even the most horrific acts. And so if there's anyone here today that comes before God thinking your shame is too great, your guilt too strong, that he isn't here for you, Let me remind you that no matter how far you have fallen, God's grace is deeper still. Come before him today, not convinced of your own righteousness, but may all of us come before him once again mindful of our own brokenness and our need for his love, our need for his mercy. Let's come before the throne And give praise and celebrate that his mercy is always more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your amazing grace, your unfailing love. God, your compassion that extends from one generation to the next. God, your incredible mercy that we so desperately need. And I would just pray, Father, that if there's anyone here today that has never truly tasted and seen the depths of that mercy, reveal it in fullness to them now in this moment. God, open their heart, open their mind and their soul to receive it. God, let us all be a people of humility who are quick to confess, ready to repent. And rather than to list out our own resume, may we champion the cross and the mercy that it provides. God, for any of us that feel that our sin is too great for you, our mistakes too vast, we come before you today, Father, in humble adoration, giving you praise to know and declare to ourselves, to each other, and to the world around us that your mercy is always more. So have mercy on us, O God according to your unfailing love. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.